0: Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, March 16th, and today we have an interview with Todd Wenning. Uh, He's a senior analyst at Ensemble Capital. Didn't really talk about any companies specifically. Maybe we did briefly, but uh, it's more oriented around portfolio management, sort of position sizing, how to think about the businesses you're analyzing. I don't know. It's really sort of portfolio construction as opposed to just uh, business analysis.
1: Yeah, we definitely look up to how Ensemble works here. Um, And I think any investor that's looking at a way to build a strategy, you know, allocation stuff, trimming, when do, all all that stuff that goes into actually managing a portfolio, they have a lot of, I think, great insights on it. And yeah, yeah, that's what we talked about during the interview.
0: Agreed. And uh, what is your story for the week? By the way, we are kind of trimming down, or we thought we were trimming down a little kerfuffle on our end. Uh, We thought we weren't going to do current state of Fintwit. So I don't have one, but Brett has one. I think we're going to start trimming that down.
1: Potentially, yeah. We've come to
0: consensus on it just because our shows are running long. We haven't really got any complaints about it. But either way, so I'm missing a current state of Fintwit. But story for the week, I'm talking the Hindenburg short report, which was delicious. It was good. Yeah. Uh, and you Every haven't read now. it yet, so um, it'll be a little more entertaining that way. But what are you talking
1: about? Uh, there was that news report that Facebook has 10,000 people working on AR VR projects. So augmented reality and virtual reality. Very interesting. Um, thought that number was huge. And we're going to have a discussion around that. Okay, and
0: then uh, we have our hot water, buy, sell, hold, anecdotal evidence. But before we move on, sales pitch time. Yeah. Uh, and the orders have been coming in. Good, People that's are Using great. Seven Investing, which Well, is that's great.
1: That it's an easy product to sell because the team over there is so great. Uh, when we talk about investors, we respect. I mean, the, the ones we know the best are you know Simon Erickson, who is the creator of Seven Investing, and Matt wow. Cochran. Uh, We respect their investing styles a ton and the whole, the rest of the team, um, they have six people right now and they're going to have their seventh uh, because they do love the number seven. So they have seven advisors, (laughs) seven picks a month. Uh, But yeah, I mean, if you want, we say it every time. I mean, there's no reason not to to try it out, at least with our uh, promo code CCM, $10 off at checkout. Yep. Uh, All
0: right. There's our sales pitch. Here we go. Okay, welcome in. I'm going to kick things off with the Lordstown Motors Mirage. So Hindenburg released a short report on a pre-revenue SPAC called Lordstown Motors. Uh, And this was an actual short report, so they do have a short position. There have been times when they do stuff where it's like they try to uncover a fraud or something like that, and they don't actually short it. Uh, I think they did that with Clover Health. But uh, anyway, Lordstown... uh, is Like I said, a pre-revenue spec. It's an EV company. So you've seen this story a million times, I guess. But they created a rendering of an all-electric truck that some people thought would sort of mirror the F-150, the Ford F-150, and it could lure some truck drivers over to sort of this electric uh to an electric vehicle future. But the CEO is named Steve Burns and he was the former founder of Workhorse, which as you know, has been in trouble recently. Workhorse
1: is, uh, yeah, I see that. Is that the that ticker that gets floated around that's had some contract not renewed or am I getting that wrong?
0: I, Yeah, no, you are getting that right, but he was removed. I guess he voluntarily stepped down, oh, yeah. but Vol- apparently <laughs> the board pushed him out. Yeah, um,
1: voluntary step downs from positions that pay millions of dollars are typically not. Yeah. Voluntary,
0: but yeah. his former employees described him as a con man so as soon as he was removed from Workhorse he started this EV company and these
1: are these are sources saying that they described him that Lord yeah. or that uh, so Hindenburg, Hindenburg got, talked got to
0: recent employees or old employees over at Workhorse and they basically said some of them were like he's he's got a good vision but he never Actually follows through with anything, um, and then some were just like, "Yeah, he's a con man." Uh, anyways, but Lordstown, the whole big thing they had going for them was that they claimed there was a bunch of demand, so they had a hundred thousand pre-sold vehicles, totaling over five billion dollars in revenue. So pre-sold is just basically orders, like people that said they
1: would buy it. So like RPO re- remaining performance obligations, or no. theoretically, or something like that, or no, no. it's, it's different. there's
0: no, there is no deposits. It's, oh. <laughs> he, they say it's very, He, the CEO yeah. claimed it in quotes as very
1: serious orders. Hmm, exactly. Cause we have very serious orders for a bunch of investors, right. To come it, onto our, <laughs> yeah, we have commitments for commitments. And they're going to commit to commit. Soon.
0: That's literally what it is. I'm not joking. That's what it is. But, uh, that was sort of the big driving force behind the stock and so hindenburg discovered that most of these orders were fictitious so Mm. a recent fourteen thousand truck orders which is that represents 735 million dollars in sales was sold to a company that operates out of a residential apartment in texas Mm.
1: they have no business they operate
0: no fleet i mean it's like if you don't have enough money to buy a house in texas I don't think you have $735 million <laughs> to buy these EV trucks.
1: Yeah, that's,
0: uh, I think. That I'm makes sorry, sense. maybe I'm <laughs> taking a leap there, but it seems. No, it makes sense. It was just an average residential apartment. I think you might be onto something. Anyways, uh, another $52.5 million order came from a two person company operating out of a Regis. Um,
1: If you don't, Regis is like a WeWork.
0: Yeah, it's like a cheaper WeWork. And the owner of that company literally told Hindenburg it won't order any vehicles in that the pre-order was just for a marketing relationship.
1: So that owner wasn't in on it. They were like, yeah, we'll do it. But I'm not controlling whether you count this as, quote, sales, kind of like that.
0: Well, yeah. So apparently these agreements are non-binding. So it's just... If you have, you basically give them this letter of interest that says, "If you guys produce or manufacture this car, we will consider ordering." Mm. So it's a commitment to consider an order.
1: Yeah, commitment to commit later and, to potentially commit later. And so these like two-person
0: companies are like, we would consider a one hundred million dollar car purchase, sure. Well, we
1: get enough stimulus checks in, we
0: might <laughs> we might be in business. Anyway, so. Uh, yeah, or the orders basically mean nothing and most customers said that they were just they wouldn't order them even if they were manufactured but right. it was something maybe they'd consider. And so when Lordstown so there was all those problems with the orders so they were basically fake. It's and funny, then yeah. Lordstown apparently was having some production difficulties as well, as you might imagine. So Lordstown attempted its first road test drive, and the car burst into flames in 10 minutes, and they had to call 911. Um, Mm. Since the SPAC in October, executives and directors have sold more than $28 million in stock.
1: Damn! Not as they gotta bump those numbers <laughs> up. It's not like uh, who is it? Trevor Milton? What is he worth? He's still he sold his Nicholas stock, correct? Or maybe he still owns part of it. Well, you can't uh, just sell
0: it. You can't sell too much, or else uh, people will lose faith.
1: Well, that's true. That's true.
0: You gotta keep the cult going, or
1: you can have a backup plan where you sell it to fund a quote trip to Mars. But that's for other it's people. <laughs> the,
0: anyway, so this is all basically fictitious, and the CEO seems like a scummy guy uh no
1: (laughs) surprise do you think this is the tip of the iceberg for the ev frauds the ev pre-revenue stuff yeah uh yes well okay i guess you know i wouldn't be surprised if there's 10 more of these yeah seems like okay you know what ones sound legit and it's basically because i trust the investors rivian is definitely legit amazon is backing it with billions of dollars that seems totally legit because I mainly because I trust amazon's judgment and they have a a legit order for a hundred thousand trucks, and then two, QuantumScape. now that no now was. that one's the like it's worth fifty billion dollars it has no revenue, and I would never invest in it right now, but Jeremy Grantham that's the one he talked about on the latest invest like the best they invested in it because the technology's so great, and they were talking about how. Well, yeah, I mean, it's still kind of a VC bet. There's no reason it should be valued at $50 billion. That one seems legit, but if... I'd still I, never invest in that. Oh, yeah, but no, 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 no. The, but they, uh, it, it wouldn't be surprised if 80% of them out there are zeros and total frauds.
0: The thing Man. I find the funniest part, like, the funniest part is the production stuff. Like, even yeah. if you get all these... Apparently, they were he was paying commissions to consultants for every pre-order that he got. Duh. So, if... Not a good look. I mean... I think people are learning how difficult it is to not only build an electric vehicle, but to scale any sort of manufacturing a <laughs> manufacturing business. I mean, it burst into flames in 10 minutes.
1: That's yeah. I mean, I don't know these maybe, yeah, I, I don't know The people have been doubting the traditional car makers. I think if you're just one of those people that doesn't know anything about the business, I mean, we don't know anything about the business really at hand Uh, or like, uh, you know, hands-on experience or anything. Neither do the CEOs. And yeah, apparently these CEOs didn't either, but you gotta have respect for what, I mean, it takes tens of thousands of people, lots of robots, lots of automation, so many moving parts uh, for like GM, Toyota, Ford. I mean, it's tough to build. It takes decades and decades.
0: Does Tesla's success or sort of marketing style that, uh, you know, big events, big launches, then you take pre-orders and you have sort of this eccentric CEO. Do you think that's given rise or given way to a rise of sort of snake oil salesmen Mm. who are just going where the money goes?
1: Let me answer that with another question. (laughs) Do I think that the CEO who became the richest man in the world committing fraud every year has enticed more people to commit fraud? I think so.
0: Sorry, Tesla shareholders, if you're listening. They, I mean, we it, figure you probably don't listen. anymore. Well, yeah. Yet. If
1: you if you listen, uh, if you still listen, uh, kudos to you for having holding you know two ideas in your head at the same time. But there's if you don't think that Tesla committed fraud, I mean, you're just. Uh, I'm sorry. Like you, what? What, what part? Care. The solar roof tile. Okay. Well, I mean, that was five years ago, so apparently it doesn't matter. But. Yeah, I mean, that that was known in court now to be to be a lie. But, sorry.
0: Do Continue. you ever worry about the incompetence of the SEC? Because this yeah. one, like, it didn't take much digging. He, they just called. They looked up the companies <laughs> that ordered
1: yeah.
0: literally almost a billion dollars worth of cars. So they looked up these companies, called them, figured out where they were headquartered. They had a UPS shipping address. How are you, hmm. like... <laughs> like at a mailbox, and it just I mean, it was a residential apartment in Texas
1: ordering a yeah. billion dollars worth of cars. Uh, yeah, I mean, the SEC they, are they just they, not looking, or do well, they have they, too much
0: to look at at once? Yeah, they
1: you can't really blame them too much. I mean, there's some things that they seem to be laxing upon. The last SEC commissioner, uh, I didn't really like it, seemed like there's a ton of things that were obvious, uh, but. There's just so much out there. I mean, you kind of gotta investigate yourself. This is why I really hate investing in. Don't you think? I mean, pre, you know, anything that hasn't been audited as a public company, you know, what it, do you it's kind of tough for me.
0: What do you think about larger barriers to entry to going public? I know it's like this uh, friction that everyone's talked about reducing, which seems weird. I think you should have.
1: Barriers a little bit to entry. Yeah, reducing friction, like, yeah, having that idea that always so reducing friction. People? Yeah, like, always reducing friction, I don't think that's something that's you should always try to do. You know what I mean? Sorry, that yeah. sounds, I don't, don't know if I'm articulating that well, but. Yeah. You're not changing the world, investing in the SPAC. You're giving money to Steve Burns. I know. it's uh, These SPACs seem like a great way to take money from poor people and give them to rich people. I'm sorry to say, yeah, Uh, Yeah. but that's what it feels like and it makes me feel bad. But the SEC, I hope they get more funding and can really actually do their job well, but it seems like they're just overwhelmed, right? Like there's just- There's too much- There's
0: too much, yeah. Take care of. All right, Uh, Facebook AR. Now,
1: yeah, this might be a little more optimistic, depends. Well, you might think it's a little dystopian, but it seems like some cool technology, so we'll get into it. Um, It was a big story, really that I think could have a lot of implications across many different industries. I think it'll make investors ask a lot of questions, which we'll probably talk about at the end. But, you know, quick backstory, Facebook has a history over the last few years of trying to get into the AR. And when I say that, it's augmented reality and virtual reality stuff. So they acquired Oculus, which is kind of their VR gaming thing. And they acquired Control Labs, which is that one company that had the thing on your wrist where you could control like um, a computer with your fingers because it connected to the you know nerves in okay. your uh, nervous system and connect to your brain it's pretty cool uh that one was the technology was just was that the josh yeah. wolf thing yeah did they so, back yeah Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, that was them you didn't want him to sell the facebook but Yeah, uh, you're thinking of that. Correct. And they have a you know, they have a lot of history of investing in that with R&D. Right now, apparently they have 10,000 people or 20 percent of the company working in VR, AR and hardware, which I thought was extremely interesting. And Facebook wanted to buy Unity in 2015. So clearly management Zuckerberg wants to. This is where like all of their R&D is focused and now it's a complicated topic so i'll try to sum it up quickly oh i misspelled (laughs) some here one second sorry uh but they they wrote a post on it about what their vision is uh but to understand you know there's a ton of moving parts so facebook labs has like a 10-year vision to create an ai-powered contextually aware interface for ar glasses combined with wrist-based motion sensors which is the control lab stuff to become the next computing paradigm i guess is kind of the you know the actual correct word here um, does that all make sense because yeah. i basically took those words from their blog post
0: yeah it makes sense um, gets i'm thinking about the discussion questions so okay. just go ahead and ask yeah them.
1: so there's no doubt you know facebook's one of the few companies with the, you know the technical expertise and the money to build something like this however long it takes but as an investor will Consumers adopt it if it's from Facebook because I think of the example of the portal, which was the uh, one. Those things, even the ones that people seem to like, or what was another one that Amazon one that they have with you know the Alexa um, with the video call thing. You know the portal is kind of like that with the, the video thing. The text seems super cool, or it you know, kind of follow you around so you could talk with people and they could always see you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that one totally flopped because people didn't want Facebook cameras in their home, do you think that brand image of, you know, you know that the bad brand image that Facebook Reputation. has, do you think that could yeah. stop any of this from happening?
0: I think they had to be very clear that they won't harvest data. And if they will, then no, I, I don't think they will. Because we saw what happened with the WhatsApp thing, when they said, we're going to start collecting data, and they had to issue that release to and everyone they, that is using WhatsApp, and, and they, they had they to appeal right? back. Yeah. Because everyone sort of, there was like this ban WhatsApp type of protest going on. So no, I don't think if they are collecting data from these VR or AR type of glasses or this human interface where it's that close to your body, people will not accept it. But if they, it has to be like a full business model pivot. Yeah. They have to go from, they have to become Apple. Facebook has to become Apple before.
1: Yeah. Before
0: Apple kills their entire business. Yeah, it seems
1: like Apple's really trying to... There's, I th- Apple It's definitely, less invasive. Apple is definitely not friendly to Facebook, I guess let's put it that way. But I think you have to ask the question, maybe if you're a Facebook investor or thinking about it, whether even if Facebook comes up to the best thing or their first, it, I mean, Apple is clearly working on something like this. Why won't they win? Because one, they're the best at designing things that look good. Which matters for something that's going to be, you know, One, part of people's style. Yeah. And two, uh, who you know, I mean, it's it feels a bit like Samsung, where Samsung creates whatever the best technologically sound products for smartphones, but people will still buy iPhones for four hundred bucks more.
0: Yeah, uh, if Apple gets it, like if we were picking between Apple and Facebook, I think Apple would have better success with it. I, but but Facebook's hard, tech yeah. is better I mean it's not an easy solution yeah. like people can't like comp- not both companies can do it obviously if Facebook was able to do this in-house they wouldn't have gone out and bought control labs that's true. Oculus.
1: that's true and uh, the thing is like maybe it's so good that it doesn't matter but I, I wonder, like, I don't know, is it really something that people are looking for is it, or is it a problem looking for a solution? But the other question I had, so Eric Sufert, uh, I hope I'm getting that right. I don't know who he is, but he seemed a lot more um, knowledgeable about this industry, which is something we are not that knowledgeable about. But he had a good article outlining why this recent push into AR as kind of the story Facebook is telling, uh, because they're, you know, you have to think. When a company, you know, leaks news or news gets leaked, typically it's intentional. Uh, so he says that the reason that this, you know, new AR stuff could be because of the growing advertising restrictions being worse for the business than we thought. Now, do you agree with that? He had this quote here: "The acceleration toward a consumer technology market that hasn't yet materialized is potentially a capitulation on the business advertising that has guided Facebook to a 750 billion dollar market cap." Would that concern you if you were an investor in Facebook? This advertising, the whole thing, might there might be a few cracks there. That's what's keeping me sort of uninterested. And Facebook
0: has become cheap for that reason, is people are genuinely worried about the future of ad revenue for Facebook. And if you listen to the Q4 conference call, it was basically like Mark's tone was that Apple is ruining his business. That's what it sounded like. He yeah, he, he I very think bitter. he clearly said Apple is our largest competitor now.
1: They're yeah, or like they're inhibiting them. They seem clearly bitter. And you have to remember that it's 98% of their revenue currently or something along that line.
0: So, yes, I think the pivot is almost existential to Facebook. To to move away from the data harvesting Ad algorithms, and yeah. you can make the claim that it's bad for small business. That Facebook, you know, Facebook kind of gives them that advantage, which nah. I haven't read up on enough. But yeah it's going to hurt their business model. And if if it's really hampered, like if the ad revenues, say you take fifty percent of it away, mm-hmm. they've they're, they've got a lot of bloat. Ten thousand employees on AR and VR. They have a lot of yeah uh, costs that they're going to have to trim down.
1: Yeah. And it it reminds me, people are like, well, is Facebook the future sin stock? And that means that they could be, you know, people hate them, uh, but they could be, uh, you know, I don't know, do well over time. Their earnings do a lot better, similar to an Altria group. That's kind of the number one I, you know, people think of for the sin stock. But the thing is that multiple has got to come down to a sin stock level before before it can be considered. I think people might not have uh, thought about that. But Last one before we move on, from an investment perspective, so you mentioned this, you know, we are, you are worried, I think we're in consensus that it is worrying that advertising stuff will face major headwinds, but can the growth of stuff like Facebook and Instagram shops, you know, they, they seem to be re- doing really well with that e-commerce stuff, this AR, VR platform, or even payments through WhatsApp counteract that? Does that, you know? I actually,
0: the more that I think through this, I think 2020 was the peak year for Facebook. And yeah, you're coming on that train, huh? I think the events that sort of, the, the, the political events that happened because, and everyone sort of reacted to, look what social media has done. Right. And I think you guys, if you're listening, you probably know what I'm talking about. I think that would be kind of uh, fitting if that was sort of the peak of the yeah. demise of Facebook.
1: And the competition seems so much stronger than ever before. The stuff about, the arguments about them being a monopoly I think will be over soon because yeah. the competition is so strong i mean if roblox has taken over the younger audience you know tiktok and they're just
0: the business model what just doesn't fit anymore it's yeah. like it's echo it's putting everyone into an echo chamber it's got everyone siloed into whatever they believe with confirmation bias and then I mean, you're, it's not even just the ads. It's not taking data and serving them ads. It's taking data and serving them the feed that they want to see. Yeah, That's the yeah. problem.
1: And we're, we're big users of Twitter, uh, so uh, we're not, like, but the fact talking that about Twitter, it morally. But.
0: The fact that Twitter is so bad at it is... Yeah, it's helped, it helps it's, them. <laughs> it's been a benefit to them. And, yes. and the fact that they... I mean, they've been slow to take data, which everyone's, like gosh you know that was everyone's big knock on twitter was they should be able to monetize their user base better but i think waiting and looking for other ways to do it has been good
1: yeah i mean twitter yeah that's a or maybe number. they're just ineffective yeah. <laughs> but and, yeah and i think you know the the e-commerce stuff sounds very promising but betting on this vr ar platform when one you don't know who's gonna win Two, you don't know if the tech can actually be mastered on a short enough time horizon. I think in 10 years it's clear that probably something like this will happen. But three, you have to worry that is this something like voice technology where it's, you know, cool and, you know, something like that, but it's not really a whole new paradigm like the iPhone. It's not where just... it might not... people. It's not like people need this. It's, you know, yeah. it feels a bit like Google Glass. I don't know.
0: Maybe, maybe. but the... The problem is you are now if you are an, an investor in Facebook, you are betting on a pivot. You're a bit, betting that they are successful doing something other than just running ads because yeah. it's becoming yeah. very difficult for them to do that and they're easy to hate. They're easy to go everyone against Facebook.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I you know, which is the problem. Yeah, we could we could definitely be wrong here. You could definitely look at it In this time period, and say like, "Wow, that was a total bad call." Maybe the advertising headwinds aren't as real as we think. It might be one of those cases where, you know, it's how we think it is versus how it actually is, and from whatever Mm. bubble we're in. But I don't know. It keeps keeping me out of it. Two years from now, you'll
0: you'll see. All right. Well, I am calling the demise. This is the top.
1: (laughs) I am not the top. I am. I am in your. I'm in your camp, but I am not. This is. And this keeps me out of investing in Facebook in general. I, with the, I'm not 100% certain with any anything that's going to happen with the company.
0: Yeah, no, I have okay. no money invested on either side of it. But, but uh, current sort of Fintwit, okay. kind of pivot there. Uh, what do you have? Because I totally forgot to have anything for this.
1: Yeah, it's, it's okay. I think this one will be quick, but a good conversation. So we've been making fun of NFTs, uh, as most people have, clearly. Um, again, I'm...
0: Non-fungible tokens.
1: Yeah, I am, uh, you know, nothing's 100% certain, but I'm 98% certain that the Top Shot stuff will go down as the peak of the bubble. I mean, it's clear. Uh, Well, fun fact, one of the investors we respect, uh, Chris Bloomstrand, he changed his background on Twitter to the the Beeple thing. I honestly
0: haven't kept up with all this Beeple and NFT stuff. Yeah, so that one's the big one that got
1: sold, the the picture or whatever, got sold for $69 million. But, you know, he's kind of trolling them. By putting it as his Twitter background. you understand what I'm saying? Good, subtle joke there. But I think I found something that might be useful. So there's this newsletter called The Generalist. They raised funds through an NFT structure for the group that's going to cover the Coinbase IPO. So like random people can participate in owning this newsletter. I think Uh, very confusing. Could have stuff wrong here, but it feels like something is actually getting backed. So like they have a share in the... Maybe the revenue here. Uh, I don't you get lost it. lost me. You I don't get me. it. So like it's a way for people to invest in this newsletter. Don't know why it needs to be in that structure, but that seems more real. Still a big doubter, but.
0: Yeah, you still have lost me. I don't understand why <laughs> you need to invest in a newsletter. In general. About a cryptocurrency buy a cryptocurrency?
1: It's no, no, that part you don't have to worry about what the content's about. But it's... Yeah, it's... Again, it it always feels like a problem searching for a solution. Wait, no. A, sol- a solution searching for... I get yeah, that wrong. It's a solution searching, for, searching for, a for a problem. Excuse me. All right, but more fun one <laughs> that I think we can understand. coupon the South Korean Amazon. Sure. That looks legit. Read the S1. Stock is trading at a really evaluation I can't get behind but it feels to me like a JD.com in a market I can trust which got me pretty excited I know I stole that from Dennis Hong but yeah hmm.
0: I didn't look into it and I just saw everyone basically posting their victory uh, of all the uh, private investors hurts, like uh, I'm so proud of what we were able to do which makes it sound like the investment yeah, so, is over <laughs> so proud we which, did this that's usually not inspiring for public investors well like i uh, we finally got it out. It's over. Like it's <laughs> yeah. the top.
1: Yeah, that. Uh, it's well, not, yeah. You're that. not
0: building up incremental demand that way.
1: Yeah. The um, the valuation is definitely rich. But I remember there was a quote in the S1 from the CEO. He, and he said something along the lines of, "We want to optimize long-term free cash flow per share, maximize long-term free cash flow per share, while wow. minimizing shareholder dilution." So I was.
0: You were you sold. Oh, all right. Yeah. Well, is that
1: it? Is That's that like it. it? Okay. P- Next, we have our interview with Todd. Wenning, any favorite parts, highlights? Uh, I would say so. We talked about a bit of a cliche topic about working from home. I know people are probably tired about that, but Todd, I honestly, he's he, been working from home yeah. for three years. And he I did think,
0: it before it was cool.
1: Yeah, he is. He is the hipster for working from home, uh, but. <laughs> There's was a lot, I don't know, he seems really knowledgeable about that topic, and they have some insights into how they've worked with Ensemble and how they look at it from an investment perspective. Uh, so I thought that was cool, because I know that's something a lot of investors are kind of weighing right now, uh, where it's like, okay. oh, I, what if management decides to do this? Sustainability of it. And yeah, stuff like that. So that was my favorite part.
0: Yeah. I, I, I kind of enjoyed the discussion around transparency with holdings, because... Because we do that. <laughs> Well, yeah, we do that. But also, he talks about the impact it sort of had and how it helps uh, them be able to bounce ideas off of each other. And I thought that was really interesting. But uh, without further ado, here you go.
1: Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is Red color, red color, where are you? All blocked. Thanks to advanced security included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply.
0: Okay, today we are welcomed by Todd Wenning. Todd is a senior investment analyst at Ensemble Capital. Uh, I believe you've been on the show before, like a while back.
1: When we were, yeah, when we were uh, not as (laughs) we were inexperienced, maybe, and uh, yeah, the show may not have been as high high as quality as it is today. Hopefully, but. We thank you for doing that, helping us uh, start out a bit. Yeah, but uh,
0: welcome to the show. Yeah, it's good to be back. Thank you. Uh, So we're probably going to talk, usually we talk more about specific companies, but this is going to be more sort of philosophy process-based. So I wanted to start out with kind of sourcing ideas. How do you personally find new ideas? Is it just through the Twitterverse or is it, uh, I mean, do you have screeners, that kind of thing? Is there one unified way or is it kind of just... From anywhere,
2: yeah. You know, I think our concentration at Ensemble—we have, you know, between twenty and twenty-five companies at a given time. You know, we can range anywhere from fifteen to thirty, but kind of our sweet spot is twenty to twenty-five. Um, so we have to be really selective about sort of companies that we we bring into the portfolio. And one of the things that we've talked about is just our lack of using screens. And one of the reasons for this is, as Sean points out and in, uh, in his other commentaries you'll, you'll hear, is that's just um, companies with targets on their back, right? You know, so if you're screening for a high returns on invested capital, it's, you know, that's where their competitors are gunning for. You know? So if you're screening for 30% plus returns on invested capital, all those companies have something other companies want. That's always the case, but, um, you know, companies with really outsized earnings and profitability are are companies that um, competitors want a piece of that business. And so, we tend to take more of a um, a general approach to finding ideas. So, we'll, I mean, we're on Twitter, we see people talking about companies, um, you know, there are um, you know, we read blogs. We, you know, have other investors that we kind of keep an eye on who um, have a similar approach to us. And so we just, you know, it's not like you know, we take that idea and we say, yeah, I mean, so and so likes it, so we have to like it too. You know, it's really, you know, we see that as a kind of step one filter. And and so the, we'll look at that and say, you know, so and so likes it. That's that's a great a great sign that there's something here. Let's dig in and build our own conviction. You know, that's something that we have to have. We're not going to, you know, use the fact that, you know, Warren Buffett owns a stock or something and say, you know, yeah, like Buffett likes it. It has to be great. It might not be. It might not fit our philosophy. So even if we find an idea from another investor, um, whether it's on Twitter or, you know, 13F filings, or whatever it might be, I mean, we have to do our own research and, and dig in. So that's, we, we, you know, and we have other people in the industry who we've gotten to know over the years and, you know we respect and any ideas that we hear from them, um, you know, we'll, we'll pay attention to. So that's how we generally think about sourcing ideas and they kind of come out of um, research in other companies. Um, you know, whether it's a certain industry we've been looking at, we'll see a, co- a competitor in that, in that field and say, that company is actually better. Let's look at that. Um, so we'll, you know, there's, it, it's hard to really pin down exactly how we find of our ideas, but it's just kind of, um, turning over as many rocks as we can find. And because we have such an established philosophy and strategy, we can tell pretty quickly whether or not the company is going to fit
1: Right. Yeah. And I think with the, the screener, that's important to like, look at, uh, if you're just doing a simple, all right, low, multiple high returns on invested capital or strong margins or whatever, well, you have to ask, well, aren't thousands of other people doing that? And if so, like what advantage do I have here? And I think it may have been you guys, or it may have been uh, some other, you know, firm that does, you know, written commentary and stuff like that. But they talked about, we don't want companies that have, you know, 30% return on invested capital now or high margins. Now we want a company that's going to develop that over time that may not look as good. Um, do you agree with that? Is that kind of you look at it a bit or?
2: Yeah, I mean, so there are a couple different scenarios, where that can work. Um, you know, we want to see companies where the moat will be at least as strong in 10 years as to, as it is today. Um, ideally, the moat gets stronger with time, and the returns on invested capital improve. But you can still do fine with a company that is, you know, 30% returns on invested capital, and is going to kind of hang on to that 30% over the next 10 years. I mean, that's still a winning opportunity at the right price. Right. And so it's just a different type of business. So, you know, we talk about, you know, legacy moats and reinvestment moats, you know, legacy moat being a company where it's returning high returns on invested capital that's been done in the past. Um, whereas, you know, reinvestment moats are situations where each incremental dollar the company spends um, on, a, on its invested capital is going to generate High returns on invested capital, and so there's more reason for them to hold on to their extra cash and plow it back in the business. And so, between the two, we prefer the reinvestment notes. Um, and the other category is the capital-light compounders, where they don't have to reinvest much at all, and the the business grows. And so those are, and Buffett talked about that in his latest um, annual letter, which is just those are the best types of businesses that they don't require this constant uh, high amounts of CapEx.
0: Right. Do you guys, uh, you said you hold like 20 to 25 companies. Do you break them out into sort of like, these are Todd's companies that he knows really well, or do you know sort of all 20 to 25?
2: Well, all, all three of us. So Sean, Standard Stockton, uh, RF, Kareem and myself are the three um, analysts on the portfolio. And so all of us should be able to talk about any company in the portfolio. Each of us is a lead of certain companies, um, but all of us should be able to have intelligent discussions about any stock in a portfolio.
1: Right. And do it, how does that work? Do you like, okay, so I know, one, for example, one of the new companies that I think you may be the lead on, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that is Nintendo. That's one of, mm-hmm. you know you discussed a lot. Uh, yep. Does that happen where you find that idea, however you found it? and then you end up presenting it to the team. And then how does that work? Do you have to like convince them uh, to, uh, you know, agree with you? Do you guys all have to have the same conviction going in? How does that process work from you finding an idea to maybe presenting it to Sean and Arif or-, or Arf, Arf, yeah, Arif, yeah,
2: <laughs> the, um, the process is, um, so with Nintendo, for example, um, I got, Initially interested in the company as an investor from reading Ryan O'Connor's great write-up on uh, Nintendo from the I think it was 2018 investor letter, which is great. Crossroads Capital, um, you can search for it online. It's great, um, and that got me interested in the business. And while our thesis isn't exactly, you know, what Ryan's is, you know, I took it to the team and we all read it, and I said, you know, here's where I think. This, this could go. You know, I think, you know, Nintendo's moat is pretty apparent, right? You know, it's really hard to, to get the IP that Nintendo has, right? Just you know, Mario, they, they can release a new Mario game, no advertising and sell 10 million copies. I mean, it's just yeah. like unbelievable how how strong that intellectual property is and um, and how passionate fans are. So to us, the moat was kind of clear. You know, we started out with Nintendo as what we call an emerging moat, because even though it had, it's, uh, typically when we're talking about emerging moats, these are companies that are trying to work towards a moat. Um, so, you know, a classic example would be like a Netflix early on where, you know, it was the rule breaker for a while. It was the one breaking the rules of traditional media. And then eventually it became the rule maker. And that's where it would have switched from an emerging moat to an actual moat type of business. Wow. Whereas with Nintendo, there was we were confident that there was a moat. We just felt it was dormant, that management had not um, monetized the moat well enough. And we saw an opportunity for the path management could take um, to make the business a lot more valuable. And so we wanted to see more confidence or more evidence of that. Happening before we upgraded uh, Nintendo to uh, to a full position, and so um, in that conversation, it was really just talking about um, you know, management's history, um, the the relevance of the IP, um, thinking about how confident we are in forecasting this sort of business, and that's um, uh, that's, that's kind of where um, the discussion. Went. there's just kind of talking through the business and then um, they would ask questions. You know, we had a like, lengthy conversations about Nintendo with mobile um, Nintendo in other countries. Um, you know, why this isn't just a normal cycle that switch is different than the DS or Wii was. Um, so we had you know really deep conversations about um, all parts of Nintendo. And, and over time we build confidence in our understanding and that's how we, um, and we can touch on this. Talk about like conviction stages, you know, going from initially like a starter position where we think, you know, we've we feel like we've got something here, um, but we're not, we don't have what we consider like a full understanding of the business, you know. So we're not going to make it a full size position just yet. We have we need time to kind of follow this company. We we recognize a pattern that's very promising, but we need to do more work before it gets in the portfolio and gets a bigger weight in the portfolio. Okay. Makes sense. Um, And so you kind of just
0: touched on this. You have those sort of small starter positions. Is that usually the way you go about building positions or are there times when you're like, Oh, this could just be 5% right off the bat.
2: I would say normally we start as a starter, unless it's a business that we've either already owned or we're already very familiar with. Um, We just, we don't want to jump into a company where there's risks or opportunities that we should have known. Um, You know, starter positions don't get weight in the portfolio. It's just that they're approved. And, you know, once we upgrade our conviction and understanding, then they can get in the portfolio. Okay. Um, And so the worst case scenario in that situation would be, you know, we put a company that we, we didn't really understand in the portfolio right away. And then Monday morning we wake up, turn on the computer and see this risk happened that we had no idea was possible. Um, You know, there's always unknown unknowns and you can't always account for those when you buy a stock, but, you know, there are some known unknowns that you should be aware of Um, and and kind of be able to um, eliminate or at least understand and and talk about all those risks, you know, before you make it a full-size position. Right. And,
0: uh, you guys wrote a, I think it was like a 10 page sort of paper on position sizing. Um, and you talked about how you sort of try to quantify the different parts, uh, whether it's conviction, I forget what the other two elements were, Mm -hmm. but do you ever worry that maybe you could anchor to those numbers? Um, even as maybe your view on the business changes
2: over time? Yeah. So, um, one of the, one of the things that we do is we look at, uh, different categories. So moat would be one relevance would be one, the 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 company's, um, customer attention, um, the the stakeholders, the shareholders, um, our understanding of the business, you know, these are all things that we, we, we quantify. And importantly, these are relative to our own portfolio. So, um, one way to approach it is just to say that you know, because especially because we're so selective that we have to have moat, we have to have management, we have to have forecastability. Those are the three things that we must have confidence in um, before we make any investment. And so right away, you know, those companies that fit that mold are already in the top two percent, I would say, of all of all companies out in the market. You know, it's very rare to have all three of those things, right? So we're already talking about a high caliber company. And so you can rank those on an absolute basis. But what you might find is that you're you're grouping everything towards the top because that's where they are. You know, and this this company has a moat, a great moat, yep. But what really matters in terms of you know, once you've cut off um, the rest of the universe and you're focusing on that one, two percent top of the of the pie, um, then you have to we found it more valuable to kind of compare those ratings across our portfolio versus doing against the absolute market so um, you know is MasterCards moat stronger than Starbucks and so we you know, rank each category and then based on those categories that feeds into or based on the, the the average and the sums of those convictions um, that helps inform our portfolio size along with valuation. And so each of us, Sean, Arif, myself, do it independently. And to your question about um, anchoring, you know, we try to reset our scores um, to the, you know, as frequently as possible. Um, it, it takes a lot of work to think through those things. Um, you know, why do we think Starbucks moats stronger than this company? And so you know, thinking through all those things and then ranking them takes a lot of time and effort And we do it whenever something changes. Like if there's, if we learn something new about a business and we say, you know, they are better at stakeholder than we thought, and we might swap it with another company. And that happens kind of an intra-quarter, but usually it's like once a quarter, we'll take a fresh look at our our ratings. And that way, you know, we're not looking at each other's ratings, we're just looking at ourselves. And then we compare it with the group. Um, So, you know, things can change. And we talk through where we have material differences in opinion. Uh,
1: That makes a lot of, uh, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like uh, I want to steal those ideas from when we do discussions. Uh, So (laughs)
0: Uh, I was going to say what, so on the flip side, then what would be sort of a red flag where you really, really like the business, but now you're kind of changing your mind about it for the, for uh, not for the better. So like, what would be, um, what would lower your conviction in something? Is there any type of event, whether it's management change, something like that?
2: Yeah, I mean that's that's an example of management change, um, especially if, and that's one of the benefits of having, you know, being explicit about your conviction across categories. Is you can say, you know, I see the moat slipping, or I see the relevance slipping, and that's kind of the red flag. It's like you know, something is going wrong here. Let's let's talk through it a little bit more. Um, you know, if we lost confidence in the company completely in that category, it wouldn't be eligible for the portfolio anymore. So um, you can see a new competitive threat. Um, you might say like, if you were, you know, like we used to own before I joined, we owned time Warner and, and better understanding Netflix, we realized, you know, time Warner is in in trouble. Right? And yeah. you know, Netflix is, is gaining this momentum. And so we, we, Sean and, and the team before I joined, you know, they exited that position. Um, and so that's just an example of a situation where, you know, we didn't have a system in place at the time, but my, my guess is that, you know, you've started seeing concerns about the moat slipping from a highest rank to the lowest rank. And then it's, you know, the next step is out of the portfolio.
1: Right. Okay. And I guess bringing up Netflix is a good example of, I think, you know, if someone from the outside looked at your, uh, The holdings in your guys's portfolio if someone's a traditional value investor that's really hard set on buying all right we can't buy it unless it's super cheap they might look at it and say like all right these companies are trading at high multiples but you know you guys still have a value investors mindset so how do you weigh that with the idea that again historically most exceptional
2: businesses do trade at a premium valuation yeah no it's it's funny and we'll we'll get People who look through our portfolio and go, "Wow, you know, these are all great companies." Like, but what's up with Netflix, right? Yeah, <laughs> and so we get that we get that question a lot. And I think um, you know, one of the things that we have increasingly valued over time is insight alpha—just having a differentiated viewpoint, and that that we we believe is correct, um, and that will help us, you know, as we model, we can model the business towards that. And, um, that was, that's been the case at least to present on Netflix is, you know, RF is a lead analyst on Netflix and had, I said, a very differentiated and what's proving to be so far pretty correct in terms of thinking about where Netflix was going and we've modeled the business appropriately. And the, you know, the market's kind of catching up with that. Um, you know, that's one of the situations where things, the process has had a very good outcome. And so that's one thing we we're trying to do a lot is you know trying to really understand the underlying business, understanding the business better than the average investor, and that really helped. I me, mean, especially I mean we were tested in this big time in March of last year when the market started falling. You know, we had a like a crash course meeting over I think two or three nights. Um, you know, I was up till. You know, midnight been beyond my time and um, and just going through all of our companies and kind of testing all the different downside risks. Um, You know, how long could this company go without revenue, right? Without, you know, until things, the, the value of the business becomes impaired. And so we had really deep conversations about each of our companies. And it was kind of neat because all of them came through, right? We were like, yeah, this is a great company. And we understand it really well. And if we had we not had conviction in those businesses going in, if we didn't feel like we had a good understanding of the unit economics, the culture, the business, the management team, we would have probably gotten shaken out at exactly the wrong time. So you know having that conviction and that understanding, that deep understanding of what the business is about and how it operates, you know, really helps in those situations.
0: It is funny how uh like looking back now like a year ago everyone started modeling out like zero revenue for every company and i guess <laughs> looking back it seems like it might have been an overreaction
1: but, but i mean to be honest I, I found what companies that i truly believed in and understood and then i yeah. found a couple that i was either following or like maybe had a position and i was like oh i guess uh, maybe i didn't have as much conviction as i thought
0: yeah so um i want to talk about uh the way you guys—I mean—you're very transparent about your holdings at Ensemble. So I'm curious, uh, what's the purpose of that? Because there are a lot of hedge funds don't disclose that, and it's kind of their secret sauce, if you will. But Ensemble has been very transparent about it. So have you guys seen any benefits from that?
2: Yeah, I mean, beyond what we disclose as an open-end mutual fund, um, you know, we we update it every quarter. Um, or maybe maybe it's monthly every quarter, Um, but either way, and we have the whole portfolio out there and um, it's kind of neat. And this is, we found this too with our blogging and being on Twitter is you get connections you didn't expect, right? So, you know, people see that you own um, Massimo, for example, and um, they'll reach out and, you know, we've, we've been, we've owned Massimo for for five years, seven years. Um, We'd love to kind of chat with you guys. About how you're thinking about it, and so that's you know, one of the benefits that you know accrue to us for that. Um, you know, maybe down the road when we get to a certain size, that might be disadvantage to us. Um, I don't, I don't see that being the case. Um, but you know, we uh, we like being transparent. Um, we like sharing our ideas. Um, you know, we've we've been just amazed by you know the type of people who have written to us over time and said, yeah, we've been following you guys for years. We had no idea. Um, and, you know, starting relationships with those folks. Um, and then that just compounds the learning um, on our end and our insights. And that's just proven to be a great advantage to us. Yeah. You talked about
0: how you follow other funds and you're like, well, we got to do our own learning, but it helps with op- I don't want to say confirmation bias, but that's us towards ensemble. Whenever we see a name in your guys' portfolio, yeah. it's always it gives a you. Little can't, more confidence. Yeah,
1: you can't. Yeah. And again, you said it before, but you can't like just take the conviction right away. You, you can say like, all right, well, we like these guys. They seem to, you know, they have a good track record, good process. And if they like something, you know, maybe we don't, but if we take a month, that seems like a great starting point to just get some research in. But one more mm-hmm. question on the transparency stuff. Um, uh, how do you deal with like the criticism and praise you'll inevitably get because, you know, not everyone's going to either agree with you. Uh, and how does it work with talking with either an outsider or a potential investor uh, in the fund?
2: Um, I mean, like in terms of, you know, people on Twitter. Or,
1: yeah, or, or,
2: or
0: stuff do, like ever, that. do people ever worry that there'll be like, That you're just exposing the secret sauce i guess that like why can't i just copy your portfolio why do i need to invest with on i don't know if you're really investor facing but
2: uh yeah no that's it's a fair question and i think um you know people do do that i'm sure some someone out there does it um (laughs) you know and i i would say that uh if you knew like the inner workings that would might you might be turned away that because you know things happen in between the month things happen in between the quarters when we update we have discussions as a team convictions might change valuations might change our position sizes will change um and so you know if it's not real time you're gonna you're gonna have a, a a difference you know in terms of our our performance and yours um you know so i i would really caution people from from doing that um just because it's it's a different different game
1: Right. And it seems like that's the quick thought that everyone has like, Oh, I'm a fund. I'm not going to expose my ideas, but I don't know. I think the benefits from what like, people like you guys doing it, just way outweighs any sort of downside. But again, we're all just in agreement here. Uh, Ryan, I think you have the next question. To- sure. Uh, I wanted to talk
0: about remote work. So, uh, you, you work remotely for Ensemble, but, um, I'm curious, first of all, do you think this is something that will last, um, Do you think there'll be some sort of hybrid environment? And then what sort of impact do you see that having on business expenses, business costs and business at large?
2: Yeah, it's really one of the big, important questions of our time. Um, You know, I, like you said, I've been working remote for three years um, with Ensemble. I'm based in Cincinnati, Ohio, and the team is all in California. And, you know, it's been in terms of, what, what we do and the research side of things um, it's a pretty good fit. Uh, you know, when I've worked at other shops, um, you know, the analysts tend to keep to themselves anyway, <laughs> right. you know, we have, right. we are trying to, you know, have deep thoughts and, you know, kind of work through things our models or whatever. And usually like, you know, being by yourself is a benefit um, not having many distractions. And um, so to that extent, it's been a good fit. And we have zoom and we have, Um, Our team messages, you know, like it's like a Slack equivalent, and um, you know, there's really, you know, and when I go out to California to see the team, um, haven't done that since COVID, of course, but when I was before, it was like we just picked up where we left off, and there's really, we we haven't found really any reason to be, you know, working next to each other. I'm sure there are certain conversations that might happen if we were next to each other that aren't happening, but it's pretty rare. Um, we think we're getting enough, enough value out of that. Um, so it's, it's worked great for us. Um, you know, and I, before COVID, I was kind of the outlier. Most people weren't working from home and then all of a sudden everybody kind of joined my world working from, working from home. And, and you, you see the, um, the, 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 the benefits of it, you know, commute um, you can, it's more flexible in terms of your schedule. Um, but on the other hand, there are downsides, right? You know, it's, you um, Sometimes in terms of the work-life balance, it can be challenging. You know, you have to be disciplined and you have to have, you know, your own space in your house where it's quiet and you don't have distractions. I mean, I've got two little kids and it's not always easy to, you know, have quiet, right? And I, you know, I'm fortunate to have my own room and separate and you kind of need that, but other people may not work for them. If they're in an apartment or close quarters with their kids, it just doesn't work. Um, So, you know, I think, you know, I've, one of my one of my pet projects that I've been working on is, um, you know, Cincinnati history. I'm looking at no early Cincinnati history. Um, I'm I'm very proud of, of where, I, where I where I'm from, and so i am I'm, I'm a big student of history, and so uh, I've been digging into Cincinnati history quite a bit. And one of the things I've I've noticed is kind of interesting was um, when the railroads came to town, the it enabled people to then move to the suburbs, and commute the town before they had to live in the city, because uh, it would have taken way too long to commute from 10, 15, 20 miles away to get into town. And I think it's a very similar phenomenon happening with work from home. It's it's almost like a transportation right in the sense that like, you know, the equivalent of me flying to San Francisco every day right? and being there. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm it's like I'm there. Right, uh, and so I think there's there's elements of that where it's more, kind of like a transportation revolution. Um, it enables people to to live further away, and maybe you don't commute to, to work every day. You are you know commuting two days a week instead of five days a week. And I think you know companies that may have been resistant to work from home, um, especially a lot of kind of more established older companies. Um, there was kind of a resistance to work from home because you have employees who've been there for a long time and never got to work from home. And they're like, you know, how come the young guys get to work from home and I don't. And, you know, so there was always some kind of tension culturally about work from home, but now that everyone's done it, I think everyone gets the benefits of it. Um, and the downsides really. And so I think more companies will be more open to at least some work from home throughout the week. Um, and I think that's probably, especially in areas where there's a lot of traffic. I think there's a great deal of benefit in terms of work from home. Um, I think in terms of how it impacts businesses, each business will be different, of course. One business that's really been interesting is Starbucks uh, because Starbucks, their their morning day part has been so important to the business. You know, right. there's people commuting to, to work, picking up coffee, um, and, you know, taking the train to town, grabbing a cup of coffee, going to work. Now they're not doing that, and they're not getting their day started until nine thirty, and that kind of cuts out a big part of the breakfast. And so, um, what Starbucks has has noticed is you know people have been going out later in the day, bigger you know having larger group orders, um, ordering more food, and they're also closing and remodeling some of their urban stores to kind of fit this more of a of a grab and go concept, um, you know less seating more convenience. Uh, and I, so I think that business has been changed, I think, for, as shareholders, and you know, we think for the better, um, you know, because of, of these, these new dynamics. And so um, now that schools are reopened mostly across the country and, you know, parents are getting out of the house, driving their kids to school, you know, they're passing Starbucks and things are starting to normalize a little bit more. But, you know, that's just a classic example of how work from home can, Impact a business and you know, really throw off its uh, its day to day operations.
0: Right, it, Or gone. Did Starbucks once try to endeavor into like wine? Did I am I
1: getting that right? Do hey, right? Know? Our producer Brady's nodding. I think. Yeah,
2: right. yeah. They had like, and I think they still are. They still have some stores out there. Um, I know when I lived in Chicago, they had one. It was kind of like Starbucks late night or something where you could come and get like a cheese plate and wine or something. <laughs> um but i don't think that scales you know nationally it's probably more just as like a you know it's interesting to see how starbucks has um evolved from its original approach of being a third place for people between home and work it's really becoming like a a beverage refueling station you know it's like you know people aren't going there and hanging out anymore they're they're going through the drive-through or going to take away i think it's I might have these numbers slightly off, but in the U.S., I think only 10% of Starbucks orders are dine-in, and 90% are to go. And so, if you're Starbucks and you've invested in all these, you know, retail footprints with seats and, you know, it's just you don't need that. And so, you're seeing more and more Starbucks, the ones that are opening, are smaller indoor footprints and have drive-throughs, and that's going to be a more mobile, mobile to go type of orders. And so. It's just Starbucks evolving.
1: Then uh, with work from home more in general, do you care about what management is saying? Like I know, for example, Netflix is kind of anti work from home. Do you care Mm -hmm. what the philosophy is or do you kind of just think, all right, the management team, if we trust, say, Reed Hastings or um, Ted Sarandos, the executive team at Netflix, if we trust their judgment, they know what's best for each individual situation.
2: Yeah, I mean that's something that each company has has to do. I mean, some businesses require in present um in presence um uh in human workers. I mean, you need to have yeah. people there for whatever whatever reason. Um I, I may not know why Netflix needs to have people there, but you know, I trust Reed and and Ted Sarandos to make those calls. Um, you know, I would say I would like to see Companies be more open-minded for this, um, and uh, because there are certainly some employees that would be more productive from home, um, it just depends. And again, it comes back to like a cultural thing too. I mean, um, some business cultures thrive on people being there, and others not so much. And so it, it's it's a case by case basis. But you know, I think it's it's wrong. In my opinion, generally speaking, to suggest that work from home is um, not not an option. It's just right, it, it strikes right. me that it that should be an option in situations where it 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 makes sense um, for certain people, you know I, you know we talked a lot about my team, you know people want i think I think Reed I think it might have been Reed, who said, um, you know sold a line from Hamilton, you know you want to be in the room where it happens. Right, so like if you're if you're an upcoming you know analyst, something you want to be next to your PM and and you know be in those discussions and be in person and get to know them on a personal level, and to an extent that's absolutely true. But you know I, you know I've spent maybe a few weeks of my life like, with with Sean and RF in person, and we know each other pretty well. Right. And so it's it, it's you know, I think there's 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 a lot of change happening. Um, you know, I, I, I would think that especially younger, um, you know, executives would be, you know, or have grown up or spent more time in this sort of digital communication world, and maybe more inclined, um, in generally speaking, to you know, work from home and remote arrangements.
1: All right. And what do you think about uh, how that impacts, like, you know, cash flow margins or earnings margins? Uh, or sorry, profit margins, like whether if someone's doing work from home, that could have a permanent impact like benefit, or if they're going to have to invest in, you know, real estate, is that something that you guys consider when underwriting investment? Or is it kind of just a minor impact?
2: I mean, so far, it's been, been pretty minor, we haven't had any serious conversations about you know, what happens to margins. at People are, are working from home. We haven't seen a lot of evidence. Companies that we follow haven't talked about that being a real benefit. Okay. Um, but it'll, it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, how that works out. Because when you think about, you know, where Ensemble is located in the Bay Area, um, commercial property is very expensive to rent, and um, to bring some on on from Ohio and not have to, you know, add another floor. To the lease um, is a big difference, right? Um, so I think the more you can incorporate remote workers, less less onus the, the company has on you know expanding its commercial real estate footprint, which is certainly at a cost in some areas. Um, but there are other other parts of that too where you know that also means that the employee has to cover certain things that they wouldn't have before, like electricity and water and whatever it else might be. So, you know, but that's all, that's all baked. That can all be baked into compensation.
1: Right. Uh, we, are you going to mention Dropbox, Ryan, or I guess no, I can, I said so the company we own is Dropbox and they right before the pandemic uh, bought, what was it? A billion dollar lease oh, very, uh, for yeah. 13 or 17 years yeah. in San Francisco and they're trying to sublease some of it now because they w- have gone to a basically hybrid work from home environment, uh, but they impaired it by, I think that asset by $400 million. So yeah, tax I, I right think off. quick <laughs> tax write-off, I guess. Uh, yeah. But that, I mean, uh, I don't know. Yeah, that, that commercial real estate part is interesting as well, but that does make sense that the expenses might just flow to benefits because you know the employees yeah. need to be taken care of when they're working at, at their own place. But Ryan, do you have...
0: What a, how, how do you think about a hybrid environment? Do you think that's something that would work at, let's say, let's use Netflix as an example. I guess maybe that's a bad example because Reed doesn't like that. But mm-hmm. uh, like uh, people have cited concerns that there might be some favoritism shown to the people that work in the company or at the mm-hmm. office more often. Do you think that's
2: something that could work at most companies? Yeah, I think, again, it really depends on the company um, and the culture. Uh, You know, I think up in your neck of the woods, um, REI did something similar where they built out a a recreational equipment uh, company, um, built a shiny new uh, headquarters, and a year later, after COVID, sold it. And I think to Facebook, actually, which is kind of interesting. Um, So I think there's uh, certainly companies where you know, being present matters quite a bit and will help you um, accelerate your career and that's really up to the employee to make that decision like if, if it was if it was you know you can work from home and realize those benefits but also realize that the risk of that is not moving up as fast as you might if you were working from here um, you gotta make that trade-off and then this, is, this happens sometimes with companies where you know they'll say you know you should really like let's say you worked for a contractor who was in you know multiple cities around the country and let's say they were headquartered in one country and you work or one one city and you worked in another city and management came to you and said hey you know you can stay in your current city and your current lifestyle but if you really want to move up and make a lot of money you need to move to headquarters and so it's kind of that same situation where it's like, you know, you have to think about the balance. Um, some companies, it doesn't matter quite as much um, and others, it does. So uh, it's really up to the employee in that situation. And you you would hope that, you know, whatever the, the management team um, is is aware of that. And so you, you don't want to lose employees who would have worked for you and could have been very valuable to you um, as a remote employee, but they don't want to be in, in the home office. So it, it's it's dynamic and it, it really depends on you know what the person's roles are and how important the in person um, experience is.
1: Yeah, okay. it seems it comes down to again, like from an investment perspective, you got to trust management again and again. I think that's what it boils down to. Yeah. Yep. Should we uh, hit
0: the wrap up questions then?
1: Yeah. Go okay. Uh, we've asked you these. I think maybe we only asked one before, but yeah, I'm not sure if we had these in yet. We were still I, in the, uh, no, start-up when, startup when we
0: asked, when we asked you for one piece of advice, I believe your answer was read, read, read. Yep. So, Do you have a change to that? Or
2: is it still sort of the same advice? I would just, you know, maybe add a, a, a sub recommendation to that. And is is right. You know, I think it's, you you read and you write, you know, that's, you know, consuming information is great, but man, it's, it's important to also write and, and synthesize those ideas and force yourself to be able to explain that, um, you know, what you just read. And, you know, that's, um, you know, to me, like, uh, we were talking before the show about, you know, my experience at The Motley Fool, writing for them and how that was a great accelerant in my learning because it forced me to write what I thought. And, you know, as you write, you think, well, do I really believe that? Or, you know, what if someone challenged that point? I need to have evidence that supports that. So then that forces you to go out and do more research. And so that's all part of the compounding. So I think, you know, reading is the consumption and then the writing is, is getting it out and, and you know, presenting it. And I think it's important to, for young analysts especially, to write regardless of whether or not you think everybody already knows this. Um, and you know, you've, uh, there's a lot of writer quotes out there that are, that talk about how someone may not have seen it or understood it from another writer, but because you said it in this way, it strikes a core with them. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to write, um, in your own voice. And, and even if you think someone's already said this a million times, I mean, look, you know, Ben Graham basically wrote, Everything there is to know about, yeah. you know, investing, right? Yeah. So what we're so what we're saying is just kind of layering on top of, you know, those foundational principles and writing them in in different ways and and thinking about different um, ways of interpreting that information. And so um, never be afraid to hold back because you think, oh, someone's already said this before. Because in investing, someone already has.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, that comes that intelligent investor example. I think works perfectly for that um, that point because everyone recommends that uh, to read that at first, you know, the intelligent investor, I think I got recommended that. I probably gave it to Ryan when I was teaching it or showing him a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's a terrible first book. Oh yeah. Uh, and I terrible. like, I, I should probably read it again because uh, now I can maybe understand it better, but that is, mm-hmm. that is a good point that like, it depends who like the level of skill of the reader and then back to the, um, you know, synthesizing information, when you have to write down all those points, I, I've done it a few times where if I write something, I'm like, oh, wow, I actually don't think this argument makes too much sense. Maybe the bear case has a couple of points there.
2: Right. You
0: know, or it struggles to hold up under scrutiny, I guess. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, last question then you want to hit? Yeah, so we're doing, oh, okay. What is one financial saying that you disagree with? So something that maybe a lot of people are out there saying... Um, and you're thinking, well, maybe I don't know if that's really that that uh, correct.
2: Yeah, I think one thing that we've really uh, thought about internally that we disagree with is Buffett's famous rule number one don't lose money. Rule number two don't forget rule number one. Because I think, you know, and this might, you know, I don't want to be unfair to Warren, but I think it's it's thinking about, I think people interpret that the wrong way. Or um, in a way that is not as useful, perhaps, as what Warren was suggesting. And so I think um, you know people look at that and say, "Well, only buy things with eight P's, right? Or only buy something that you think is super, super cheap." But if you if you thought that way, you never would have owned Costco at any point, right? Yeah. <laughs> even as it even as it you know generated ten percent Kagers over the past ten years or whatever it is. You know, because the PE was always looked expensive, and so you think, you know, I don't want to lose money because Costco's got a high PE. And so I think it's, you know, but if I had to edit that that comment, it would be, don't lose money, but then also make money. Right. And it's it's, yeah. sort of, it's sort of it's sort of, it's sort of it's sort of like um kind of a cryptic expression because it's it's you know people lose more money um, you know, on, on costs of emission, Right. Yeah. And so, you know, like, maybe it's like your don't, your principal doesn't shrink or whatever, but it's thinking about, you know, you're, you've missed out on this, this huge return and that's also a cost, right? That's, that's also losing money in a way like, you know, something that you would have invested in, but you were so worried about it being super cheap and waiting for it that you never actually invested in it. Um, and missing out on the fact that, you know, stocks can go down by a hundred percent, but they can rise, you know, infinity in theory, mm-hmm. and so you know, thinking about you know, uh, weighing those risks and thinking about opportunities, um, you know, and uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, we see ourselves as value investors, even though you know, if you look at us, on like Morningstar Box, we're in the core to growth kind of side. It's really yeah. we want to find businesses that we think are worth less or worth a lot more than the market currently prices, and that's the essence of value investing, right? And there's just different ways of of um, approaching that, you know, there's like the traditional value investors who are, you know, looking at the balance sheet and saying, well, you know, if this thing, you know, liquidates, then you know, here's the net asset value, and so the downside's very low, you know, and you can make money in all different ways. So this is in no way a critique of, of value traditional value investing, but it's just thinking there's there's more than one way to to do to practice value investing and, and do it well.
1: Yeah, the margin of safety, I think that idea as well, uh, maybe gets people in trouble because the, I think, you know, a lot of the businesses you own, I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think the, um, the argument you guys may be making is that since the businesses are so strong, they have such a strong moat, they have great returns on invested capital that, you know, even if it's trading at say a quote, absolute expensive valuation, maybe at 30 or 40 times free cash flow the company is as is of such high quality that. It probably deserves to trade at a premium multiple rel- relative to some of the other crappier businesses out there.
2: Yeah. And, you know, wh- one of the things that we found, and this is one thing that I think it took me time as an analyst to appreciate, is that your intrinsic value of a company, all else equal, should go up every year, right? As the time value of money changes, um, as you roll your model forward. The intrinsic value of the business, assuming no other change, should go up, right, you know, by the cost of equity minus the dividend yield, um, if no other changes occur. Right. And, great bus- and great businesses um, find ways to create value in ways that you had not even modeled. And so, you know, I think earlier in my career, I would, I would say, you know, I think the stock is worth 50 and you know, is trading at like twenty five or something, and I would sit there and wait till it got to look at the fifty and say, "Ha, you know, I got it right." Yeah. And then, it'd be a really, but in the meantime, the stock kept going up, and I was like, "What's going on?" Because the intrinsic value also went up, and I was too static with my fair value. And so, thinking about you know how the business value changes, and it changes every day, you just can't see it. Um, and it's it's just thinking about remembering that fair value is dynamic.
1: Yeah, yeah, businesses can surprise to the upside if they're, right. uh, if they're high quality. Yep. All right, I think that's all the
0: questions we have, right? Yeah, I got okay. nothing else. Todd, thank you for joining. Had a blast. Sure.
2: Happy to be here. Thanks a lot, guys.
0: Welcome back in. Thanks again to Todd Wenning for coming on. Next, we have hot water. I just have three. Okay. Um, kind of interesting. I'll go with the first one. This one's not as funny, but- it's like hard to come back from. So board meetings are in hot water this week. The CEO of Tegna, a $4.3 billion Mm -hmm. media company, accidentally mistook a black lawyer and professor for a car valet person who, this guy later became a candidate for the company's board of directors. Tough. Which. Board meetings are gonna be awkward. That's, I mean, there's really no coming back from that. <laughs> no, um, no, for the that,
1: CEO, that is not coming. Yeah,
0: that relationship is gone. Sorry, it sounds like. But the second one for me, uh, justice is in hot water because Elizabeth Holmes' trial was delayed due to her being pregnant. Yeah, this well, was was the, the test was the test accurate? Yeah, that that's the question. Ha ha. But uh, isn't I mean. That was planned. There's no way this this wasn't spontaneous. Yeah, I, dude. This this I well I can't trust anything she does. Yeah, she's psychotic. All right, whatever. I thought that was kind of funny. And then uh, the last one, consensus is in hot water. Our okay. friend Ian Gray did a multi-bagger madness tournament in October. So, multi-bagger madness. It was kind of. it it was cool I'm glad Ian did it he and if you're not familiar with Ian he is on the show every Thursday episode um and he put together this basically March Madness style bracket where you vote on which company you like best and it was 64 different companies and the winner of it was Fastly since it since Fastly won the tournament it is down 41%
1: oh I think yeah I mean that tournament was fun it was fun to watch but the consent it was almost like a uh
0: it it's a proxy for what's the most liked business among yeah. investors.
1: Yes, yes, definitely is, and yeah, the, I can. It makes a lot of sense that the top, the most popular, the winners of that will do poorly. This which is, is weird. It's a little backwards. Yeah, it's
0: funny, but the uh, it is kind of interesting that there's a, there is this idea that buy quality at any price.
1: Yeah, um, which is wrong, by the way yeah no right. no 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 it's not wrong i uh no. whatever style fits your belt but
0: <laughs> anyway it uh if everyone thinks the same thing on a company there's not really any inefficiency it's hard to gain an edge as an investor that way right
1: I yeah mean, my favorite investment is when people think the consensus when i think the consensus is wrong that's right. what i love that yeah okay uh what do you have Okay, creators, I think, I have no idea who would be in hot water for this, but I'm just going to read this quote because I think a lot of people are going insane, has been a kind of a theme over the last few months with these hot waters. So, quote here from the New York Times. Courtney Smith, the founder and chief executive of New New, said the company was, quote, similar to the stock market in that, quote, you can buy shares, which are essentially votes, to be able to control a certain level of a person's life. Quote, We're building an economy of attention where you can purchase moments in other people's lives, and we take it a step further by allowing and enabling people to control these moments, she said. What level of the Black Mirror dystopian episode are we in? This is how... There's... What is going on? I feel like an old man, like... (laughs) What... Yeah, I mean, I didn't really
0: understand what you just said. So I, I'll be honest, I'm so far behind in the NFT stuff, it makes
1: no sense to me. I've tried to keep up, and I, they're like, let me, every time I read something, they're like, let me explain how this works. And it's like the Fed. It just makes it worse. Or it's like someone's like, let me explain how the Fed works. And then I go, cool, I'm going to learn what the Fed does. And then after, no. same thing with Same thing with NFTs.
0: And yeah, they're like, well, you get ownership in that, like, it's like digital art. It's like, but you don't own anything at the same time. (laughs) You don't actually own anything, but you pay you pay money to own it.
1: Yeah, what all this stuff with? All right. Anyway, it's insane. All right. uh, uh, Next one. Us the Tesla haters, as people know, make fun of us. We've been wrong. Blah 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 blah. But that techno king and master of coins stuff, uh, it was dumb, and it doesn't matter. But it got under my skin. So congrats again. (laughs) They, they, uh, they, you know. I uh, don't know why it should make me mad, but it does. It, it's it's all right. It was funny. I'll admit it was pretty funny, though. Objective achievement. Yeah, I don't mind it.
0: And it's not like, I mean, I just find it funny that Bloomberg has to report
1: it. That That's probably the that. best part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Next one is Morgan Stanley. So here's a job description. Quote, reporter banking in New York, New York. The Wall Street Journal is seeking a reporter to cover the most storied firm on Wall Street, Goldman Sachs. This is a marquee beat at the center of markets and finance. I thought you That's said the this was Morgan paragraph. Stanley. Right? That's the first paragraph. Next paragraph, not in the headline. You will also cover Morgan Stanley. Oh. <laughs> tough look from all. Tough lay. Yeah, from Morgan Stanley. All They're right. a sponsor of the golf tournament this weekend, too. There's some cringy ads with Justin Rose. Last one. Okay, last one. More Goldman Sachs workers. <laughs> uh, th- this is a tough anecdote for anyone that works in, um, is like a, you, Thank know, you IB. Yeah, or just anyone in general that you know sees their boss when they're on vacation. So, this is from I assume a Bloomberg article. Few things annoyed Solomon, who is Goldman's CEO, more last year than an encounter with a junior employee in the Hamptons. The Goldman Sachs boss has told lieutenants how the underlying underling walked up to a restaurant, introduced himself, and pointed to associates with him in the middle of the workday. Now, probably not smart by the worker, but a little bit hypocritical by old uh, our djing ceo at Goldman Sachs because he was had to be in on vacation too but he can do whatever seat. he wants well yeah that's true but the uh yeah. apparently they're not, apparently he doesn't like work from home or is using this, that as an excuse to not go work from home
0: i have this picture of investment banks in my mind and i never want to go visit one because i want it to stay the way it is
1: what's the picture
0: This corporate hierarchy where it's like floors above, they take buildings, and the junior employees are on level one, everyone Uh kind of talks down to them. And then like the CEOs on the top floor, and you just, there's no intermingling, you don't skip floors. (laughs) It's
1: It's, all based on margin call. Yeah, essentially. (laughs) Yeah. And they all have each person you're not allowed to wear... Uh, the junior employees can only wear like a $300 suit and then you have to wear like that $2,000 suit if you're on the top floor. Yeah.
0: And if you're a really, really good employee, you just leave. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. Uh. Hazing is rampant. It's hazing. something that I, yeah, I picture that in my mind as it, well.
1: It's like a cross between them. Yeah. It's, it's like Har- you know, Harvard cross between a frat and, uh. Super intelligent people. I don't know. Yeah.
0: All right. Uh, That's it. That's That's all you have, right? Yeah. Buy so hold. Buy so hold. The theme this week is spacks that I know you'll never touch. Uh, So, Uh, Nicola, Lordstown Motors, and Virgin Galactic.
1: Okay. You know, we just talked about the stuff with Lordstown Motors, but Virgin Galactic is. I don't know. That's just a never like. They're all never.
0: So good luck with that.
1: Yeah, to buy one. Okay, Nicola has the investment from GM, right? Sure. To be honest. I, mean, I don't again, even know if
0: they closed on that.
1: Oh, uh, that's a commitment. That's another commitment to potentially commit. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Uh, it's a possible commitment to commit. Uh, you okay, have I'll, to I'll, go, I'll just I'll ride Rationalize it a purchase for. I'll ride. R- I'll, ra- I'll ride with Nikola just because of the GM investment, Lordstown. Yeah, no, we'll 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 hold that. But we're selling Virgin Galactic because you and Chamath both. Yeah, I mean, Ch- well, yeah, because Chamath is selling. You got to ride with Chamath, but. I mean, it's just the those EV SPACs are a bet on hope, but Virgin Galactic's a bet on just fantasy. <laughs> yeah,
0: I don't. I mean, it's really not that different. It's just that the people that were it's harder uh, though. Yeah, it's dude, way it's, harder. It's a lot harder, um, and but they were taking those pre like they were taking the orders that yeah. I want to rides essentially. Oh, yeah. They were. I mean, how's that different than Lordstown Motors? I guess maybe people were doing it voluntarily instead of being paid to do it. But it's like... It's all ridiculous. It's. An, I mean... I don't see how I could ever invest in the pre-revenue business never, anywhere never, in any never, industry.
1: No, it, it's it's got to be... It's not um, something we're the, comfortable with, I guess. But hope hope is never an investment thesis. A good thesis. thesis? Never. Hope is never an investment thesis. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, I'll just... No, that was the hardest hard. one we've done in a while. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to like some of those. Uh, anecdotal evidence. Mine's kind of more serious, uh, really? but I saw a tweet that I thought was kind of interesting, and so it asked, "Why do people use enterprise value instead of market cap?" And at first, my first instinct was because it, you know, it well, takes into it? account like the net cash and all that stuff, but or, or investments, anything like that. But shown at the market cap, price that in.
1: Uh, no, no. So I think it's nuanced. I think it's nuanced. Uh, I'm trying to visualize it. That was kind of the
0: idea was like, well, and everyone in his mentions were like, well, enterprise value includes net cash position. It's like, shouldn't the market count? I mean, if you're buying the business, you've probably looked at the net cash position.
1: Yeah, I think
0: it, well. I mean, it's kind of an efficient market theory,
1: but. Well, no, I don't know. I mean, the, no, I. It's one of those where it really doesn't, like, okay, for example, when we look at, say, Ultra Group, I, I bring this up so much just because it's something we actually own, but the dividend yield is based off of the market cap and whatever, the share price and stuff like, you know, whatever that that little connection But the enterprise value doesn't come into play with that. So I think that can really, you know, cloud people's judgment. But because when you look at like, all right, we're investing for at an enterprise value to blank free cash flow or operating income or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, that might make, I don't know. I I might be talking, non. I might be just talking nonsense.
0: Yeah. I've been thinking about it. Like, I don't know if enterprise value is that important of metric. Well,
1: yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you again, shouldn't, again, maybe, it maybe it's not one or the other. Yeah. Maybe there isn't one
0: that's that be- much better. And it's coming from an enterprise value guy. I've been in the enterprise value camp, and now I'm starting to realize
1: <sighs> maybe the merits not. might
0: be less than I thought.
1: Well, yeah. If you look at market cap, I think you just have to look at it and then consider the cash position and consider the debt. Like, you just don't ignore right. any debt. Um, a lot of the times, they're going to be so similar, it doesn't matter. But just don't ignore, yeah, don't ignore the debt. And, uh, yeah, I mean, all, the, all that matters is free cash flow per share over the long term. That's all, that's all <laughs> okay.
0: I can Sound like a robot, but yeah. all
1: right. What, uh, what do you have? Uh, okay, this, just one. So something we, I think we talk about is do we think the the little mini mania that we consider that's going on. We talked about it a lot this week again with the EV spec stuff. um, And we worry about, is it just kind of in the Twitter sphere? Is it just kind of a niche thing where it's not going mainstream? But I have some anecdotal evidence, some real stuff that is not just the Twitter bubble. So talk with someone the other day, someone who's not really in investing. And he was saying that, yeah, I was talking with my friends and they all were telling me how I have to invest in these electric vehicle companies. Uh, they're all like in the construction industry you gotta invest in these electric vehicle companies these battery things are can't miss I'm up 200% on these things you have to get in on this you know Uh, and it's true and that's where
0: I get most of my most bubblish feelings is when I talk to someone who's not on Twitter and is uh, like it's just I'm buying it because hopefully it's the future
1: yeah the, the this is real real anecdotal evidence I think that the EV stuff is just such a clear bubble. You or know, it's astounding. Yeah,
0: the one I find probably the most entertaining is when the rising price is its own justification to buy the shares. Yeah. Where you have, where when you ask somebody, why'd you buy that? They're like, well, look what it's, you know, mm-hmm. well, look what the stock's done. If I would have bought it two months ago, I'd be up 200%. Yeah, not,
1: again, that comes. I like to flip that around when people are like, dude, the shares haven't gone anywhere for five years. And I'm like... I don't good. I don't care. That's that's, that's if people good. Are that saying that, that's, the intrinsic value is
0: growing while the multiple hasn't.
1: Yeah, yeah as long as the business is doing well on under right. the underlying. Um, but I'm gonna say yeah. The two big themes are people that you know use nothing. Sorry. The two big quotes I've been thinking about in relation to a lot of this stuff are one, hope isn't an investment thesis, and two, uh, forget who started it, but nothing changes sentiment like price. Yeah. Uh, that is clear, but. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone kind of knows that. But on that market cap stuff, I'm kind of thinking if anyone has any like thoughts on that because we really weren't. I could no, easily yeah, go I with my thoughts. No, yeah, I probably should have
0: prepared that one. But before.
1: if you have any thoughts, if we're thinking that, if you like one or the other, please please let us know because uh, we're kind of just now we m- middle,
0: right in the right in the middle. I don't know. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks to Todd Wenning for coming on. We are general partners at Arch Capital. uh, So any limited partners or uh, investors may have positions in the securities discussed on this podcast. We're also not financial advisors. So anything we discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time.